Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the band, for the songs, and uh, those of you blessed with the ability to write those. And God, we just uh, use them to worship you today. And I pray that you've received that with honor and glory. And God, I pray as we open up the word of God today that you'd speak to our heart, pray that you'd change lives. And Lord, I pray for anyone that has never received Christ in their heart, that they would make that decision today. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's good to see you this morning, and I know that as um, we meet together, we have the English Second Language, we call them ESL group, meeting right over here. We want to welcome them once again. If you were late coming in, we uh, minister to about 300 um, people uh, every week, and uh, our group comes together and they teach um, uh, English as a Second Language, so we, we appreciate them so much. Now, a lot of you um, probably watched college football yesterday. And I'm not going to say anything except for, you know, congratulations to UCF. But, um, you know, you were, uh, hey, you know, let's, you know, that's good. You know, that, hey, top 25 team, you don't realize that that's good for our community. It's good for our college, therefore good for our community. And so we, we praise the Lord for that. Now, at the same time, as you were watching television or you were at the game, you were pulling for your team to win. You know, there was competition going on. And, man, some of the games were really close some will won maybe at the last moment, and you're pulling for your team to win. Well, I'm pulling for you to win. I'm pulling for you to win in the midst of spiritual warfare. And we've been going over the last seven, eight weeks about the seven enemies to our faith, and we've talked about things like making mistakes, how Satan will come along and make you feel guilty for those things, even when they may weren't a sin at all. they just, you know, a human error. And then we've talked about unanswered prayer and how that can just really get to you in your heart because you wonder if God really cares about you if he's not going to answer your prayer, especially the way you want it to be answered. And we talked about temptation. We talked about so many different things in the last seven weeks, but there's something underlying to it all. How does Satan really get into us um, and our thought life in order to make us feel discouraged, in order to uh, lead us into yielding to temptation. How do these things happen? Well, I want us to open up the Word of God this morning. And as we do to Acts chapter 17, we open up that passage of Scripture. And um, the title of the message today, Ground Zero. Now, when you think about Ground Zero, you think about 9-11. But originally, it was uh, the beginning of of a center point of a nuclear attack. The Pentagon kind of coined this phrase that, in fact, the center of the Pentagon was known as ground zero in case, you know, it was a thing about a nuclear weapon coming and the point of attack, the very point that it hit was ground zero. It's come to mean the point of attack, but also the point of solution as well. And so what is Satan's in his, our spiritual warfare, what is his point of attack? Now tonight uh, in our series of Angels and Demons, we're going to be, we've been looking at the angel part the last two weeks. Now we're going to be looking at the other side in spiritual warfare. And so, but this is a different, this is different this morning uh, with the, as we conclude our series of messages on seven enemies to our faith. Romans 12, 2 says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so whatever it is, 
the ground zero that we're talking about is right here between the ears. It's the mind. It's the thoughts and the thought processes that Satan would place in our mind to cause us to be controlled by something that we don't want to be controlled by. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's discouragement. Maybe it's despair, whatever it is. And so as we look at this, we find in Acts chapter 17, Paul is coming to Athens, Greece. Now, this is not a scheduled stop, by the way. Uh, there was persecution going on, and so he found himself in, in, uh, in Athens, and he was waiting for some friends to come, and he begins to kind of look around about and all the idols that were around. And as we look at this, he uh, approaches now the Greek philosophers of his day. Now, just keep in mind that Athens was no longer the, the, the center, uh, even the cultural center of the world at that time. It wasn't the financial center of the world, but it was the intellectual center of the world. Rome had adopted a lot of the Greek philosophies and a lot of the Greek culture, and they looked to Athens to really sort of have that think tank, and whatever really came out of Athens would eventually be believed by the rest of the Roman Empire. And so we look at this. I want us to look in this passage three things. The place of attack, the progression of the deception that happens in our life, and then finally, the path to freedom. First of all, the place of attack, the mind. In, in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, it says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. Now, this word means to be um, uh, bothered to a point where you're torn from the inside and, and you're really feeling emotion, emotion on the inside to really do something because it's the same type of Hebrew word in the Old Testament where it caused God to say he's provoked because he is, he is conflicted. Because on the one hand, he knows he needs to punish sin, but he doesn't want to punish the sinner. And so there's a, there's a conflict involved here in Paul's mind. And it would be. He's Jewish by, by birth. He's been Jewish all of his life except for when he became a Christian and followed Christ there on the road to Damascus. And that story is in his witness. But then we understand that in the Old Testament, the Bible teaches us the Lord our God is one God. And so back from the time of his birth, he said there's only one God. So he's coming into Athens, and he's seeing all these idols around. Now, it's been said that back during the New Testament times, it was easier to find an idol in Athens than it was a man. And so they were everywhere. And there were people gathered around. It was sort of like the, all the Ivy League schools all put together, and they would discuss uh, the latest thoughts and the latest things and the latest educational thoughts in order to put them together in some kind of new philosophy. And so here we find that he was dialoguing. He says, so he reasoned. He said, first of all, he's provoked within him because he saw the city was full of idols, and he reasoned in the synagogue. So he wasn't really uh, preaching here at the epicenter of uh, thought. He was... Um, he, he was reasoning with him sort of like a, a Socratic type of um, dialogue where he would ask questions and then they would give answers. Then he'd turn their answers around on them to tell them really what the truth was. So he was reasoning with them. And it says in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Well, back in the time at this, at this point, it tells us there were two basic schools of thought. The Epicureans, and they believed, just like what we believe in the America today, live and let live. There is no absolute truth. 
uh, whatever's true for you is not necessarily true for me, so don't bother me with your truth. And this is the Epicurean philosophy. It got into the fact that they wanted to have pleasure in their life, just enjoy life. Hey, you only go around once in life. God doesn't exist. And if he does exist, he doesn't really care about your life anyway. And so when you're dead, you're dead. Just go ahead and, and, and get all the, the gusto, you might say, out of life that you possibly can. Now, the Stoics work a little bit of the opposite, a little bit, even though they ended up in the same place. They were pantheists, and they believed being one with nature, and they believed in moral absolutes. But here's the thing. They said, look, stuff's going to happen all your life. What you need to do is just not sweat it. You need Happiness comes when you come to the point, place in your life where nothing bothers you. You're not bothered by the emotional things. You don't cry. You don't laugh. It's just you're stoic. You're just kind of in the middle. And so these two different philosophies were kind of duking it out. And notice it says they called him a babbler. What does this babbler wish to say? Well, they've been listening to him for a while. They maybe even heard, or maybe they did listen to him. Maybe they heard, and man, this guy's got some good ideas. You ought to listen to him. So they go, well, what, what does this bird brain have to say? That's what it means. Babbler comes from seed picker. And so it gives the idea of a bird coming along and picking seeds. So what they were calling Paul basically was a bird brain. You know, and you can see from this the intellectual elitism that they were feeling in that day, much like what we're seeing in, in our world and have seen in our world um, all down through history. You've got some people that feel like they, they know more than anybody else, and these people are just kind of commoners. And so what's this bird brain have to say? Then he goes on, and it says, what does this babbler have? Others said he seems to be a, a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The Bible says that philosophy, or rather, the Bible says this in Colossians 2, 6 and 8 about philosophy. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up. You know, knowing the word of God, built up in the faith and established in the faith so that you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. <clears throat> See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This word, captive, first of all, means to um, be, be enslaved by someone. Now, when you had, back in this time and back during the, uh, the biblical times, you went into a country and you captured the country, you would, capt you would capture the people that lost the war capture them. And a lot of times enslavement was involved and certainly some torture was involved. And he says, look, don't be tortured by these vain philosophies. Do not be enslaved by them at all. And he's saying to him, to, the, to us, these captive philosophies are about empty deceit. They're, they come from human tradition. Notice there, there is something opposed here. Human tradition, doctrines of spirits, demons, the devil, and not, on the other hand, according to Christ. And so when we think about philosophy for just a moment, I realize not all philosophy is bad, but here, here's the thing. I'm going to give you very simple, just for simplicity's sake, and I know you'll never find this definition probably in a dictionary. But basically, philosophy is your outlook on life, your thoughts of life, how you think the world works without God. All right? It's apart from, you say, well, there's Christian philosophy. Yeah, but in my opinion, once it becomes Christian philosophy, it really becomes theology. 
It's the doctrine of God and how God works in the world. And so taking God out of the equation, you have, you have regular philosophy. And that's how you, you study the world apart from God. Now, why is this so important? Because your mind controls who you, who you are. That's why, uh, what you do. That's why, as you watch television, you have all these advertisements that come up. Everything on TV, why? They want you to buy their product. If they can get you to believe these Ginzu knives are really worth $19.95, you know, you're going to want to buy them, all right? And so beliefs determine behavior all the time. You say, well, like what? All right, for example, if you believed that your goal in life and your right in life was to be happy, why, you might, you're going to act that way. In other words, you're just going to have a good time. You may leave your family because some other person makes you happier. Uh, if you believe that your religion not only was the right religion, and every religion believes that, your, your religion was the right religion, but if you didn't believe this religion, then you deserve to die. You were an infidel. Or maybe you'd strap on a bomb. Maybe you would take your truck and run through the marketplace. Beliefs determine how you behave. If I said, just a moment, you, you heard the fire alarm go off, and I just said, hey, folks, don't worry about it. It's, it's just a it, it's false alarm. Some child just pulled the alarm. Don't worry about it. Well, you'd probably stay, stick around unless you couldn't stand the noise. But if I said, folks, don't worry about it, a child just kicked the alarm, excuse me, and I ran as hard as I could, then you would probably think, wow, there might, there might be a fire here. I need to run. So our beliefs determine what we do with our actions. So Satan's ground zero is our mind. How does he get us into wrong thinking? How, what happens when we feel, we feel the doubt, we feel the fear, we feel the despair, discouragement, false guilt? 2 Corinthians says this to us. Paul said, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses or strongholds in our life. We are destroying speculations and every thought, every lofty thought raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking thought, every, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So he says, look, here's what you need to do. We, we are all guilty of speculation. We are all guilty of daydreaming and making some temptation more than what it is. We're all guilty of speculating or fake news in our own mind. That's where really fake news comes from. We say, I bet you this, I bet you this, I bet you this person's saying this about me. I bet you this is happening. I bet you this, I bet you this, this is going to happen. And it will determine how your fears and how you behave. He says, don't be enslaved by that. Don't be enslaved by false beliefs, but rather enslave every thought to the obedience of Christ. Take it captive for the obedience of Christ. Now, how does Satan work? Well, it's like this. We've said before, he came to Eve in the Garden of Eden. The first thing he did was doubt God's word. First thing. Has God really said that? And then he denied God's word. God has not said that at all. Thirdly, he substituted God's word. He says, not only will that not happen, but when you eat of this fruit, Eve, you're going to be just like God. And so he placed the thoughts in Eve's mind, and then she yielded to the temptation. And so how do we get to this point? How do we get this point in the society? Because here's what normally happens in our society. We are people of our day. In other words, we look back and some of the things our grandfathers, grandmothers believed, we thought, oh, how did they ever, that's embarrassing. Don't say that, don't think that, don't talk about that. Because it's embarrassing 
to what they believe. And chances are, maybe our grandchildren, or great-grandchildren, has to be great-grandchildren, great-grandchildren will look back and say, wow, I can't believe they believe that. But we're basically, outside of the Bible at least, people of our day, people of our time. And very few people will challenge the status quo. They'll just get into what everybody else thinks, go with the flow. They, they don't want conflict. They don't want argument. And they say, well, you know, this person does have a good argument. Listen, as I'm going to say tonight in the, in the series uh, tonight, you know, when, when Satan could convince one-third of the angels to fall with him, to get out of heaven, to try to overthrow the kingdom of God, if he can talk the angels who've been in heaven for all that time, been around the throne of God, knew God, knew Jesus, knew the Holy Spirit, when, when you're thinking about they knew God, and they still were convinced to fall. Don't you think he can convince us? In fact, every argument has, to, has some convincing thoughts. Otherwise, nobody would believe it. Nobody would. And so the Bible says, take into captivity. But how does a society get there? If everybody is pretty much in the status quo, oh, because there's some free thinkers out there. There are some free thinkers that come along and they think, man, you are weird. You know, you're way out there. But yet, eventually, society moves through those thoughts and those arguments. If that person is an intellectual, uh, in an intellectual place where they can spread what's going on. Let me give you some examples. Rousseau and um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, French philosopher, came up with a theory that man is basically good. It's basically good. And yet, Rousseau himself, and I'm just going to go over this quickly, but Rousseau himself had about seven, I think it was, different children by different women. Not seven different women necessarily, but different women. And all of them he sent to the asylum. You know, we would call it an adoption agency today or, a, uh, or something like that. But back then it wasn't like that. Why? Because he couldn't work. He couldn't think with crying babies going on. But a man is basically good. Many believe that today. In fact, most do. Charles Darwin comes along in the next century and says, well, there's survival of the fittest. We came from evolution. And a lot of people were asking the question to atheists, the few that were around, how in the world, if you don't believe in God, where did man come from? And, and they didn't have an answer. Well, Darwin comes along with an answer, and all of a sudden, during the 18th or the 19th century, that got so popular whether we didn't have DNA back then, we didn't have any kind of proofs, but it became so popular back then that it began to grow, and it's even in our educational systems today. And evolution, by the way, does not show us where the origin of life came from, only how it evolved. So even if you were to believe that. But as Carl Sagan would put it, who, was, uh, who often taught, his films were taught in our public school system for many, many years, he said, by chance this happened, by chance this happened, by chance that and that and that. And, and you read it for yourself. It's chance. Chance. Chance is not science. Chance is mathematics. Now, back then, they didn't know we had DNA. But one, right now, I read, I read at least, one, we have 100 trillion cells in our body, and the chance of one DNA changing to make our appearance change in any way is 10 to the 40 thousandth power. Now, that's 10 
with 40,000 zeros following it. Burrell's laws of chance say that anything with 10 to, with more than 50 zeros is mathematically impossible. But here we have it. Well, we had we have an origin. In order to have you got to have four things by the way, an argument for life. One you got to have origin, you have significance, you have to answer you give an answer for evil in the world and a future life. Just take the first two. Without an origin from God, there is no significance for life. There's nothing. You live, you die, and that's it. You're, when you're dead, you're just dead. There's no reason to uh, say that I'm, I'm trying to make a difference in life. Why make a difference in life? I mean, after all, you're going to die. The next person's going to die. You're going to make things a little bit better for a few years for somebody else, maybe. But then they're going to die. There's no significance to that at all. It came down to what Huxley said in Brave New World. He says, I rebel against the, the morality of the Bible. He says, I don't believe in God, not because of the proofs of his non-existence, but because he and his rules interfere with my sexual mores. And that's it. People, the Bible says in Romans 1, we have the thoughts of God in our heart. I have very, I've never had to convince a five, six, seven-year-old that God exists. So when I persuade an adult, I have to re-persuade them that God exists. Because somewhere in their life, they have decided through influence, intellectual influence, or really probably some kind of sin in their life, I can't live that way. I'm tired of feeling guilty that way. Oh, my goodness, I just feel like the world's going to cave in on me. So I just don't believe the rules at all. And therefore, if I don't believe the rules, maybe I don't believe in the ruler either. George Hagel comes along in that same century and, um, and really... Uh, analyze something that was already happening in our world. So he didn't invent it. He just analyzed it, discovered it, put a name to it. And he says, look, we have um, a belief in the world and a society. And believe me, it's not just, you know, here in America, but every society have a, has a different set of beliefs uh, oftentimes. So anyway, we have a belief, and he called it a thesis. We have a thesis that we believe. Everybody believes it's pretty much the same thing. Nobody challenges it, but then you have a free thinker come along, and they challenge it. And he called that an antithesis. And nobody believes that. Oh, my goodness, that's, that's way out in left field. You must be nuts. Nobody's ever going to believe that. So, but anyway, what happens, instead of believing all this, they just slip the belief just a little bit toward it. And it becomes a new thesis. And I've often given this uh, uh, example to people. Uh, many of you watch the, maybe the old television show on reruns, I Love Lucy. Anybody ever seen that movie or, or TV show? All right, a few of you. Some of you won't vote. I think I'm going to call up, you know, but um, call on you some way. But um, many of you watched <clears throat> I Love Lucy. Now, if you watch those reruns, you will find that when they take a bedroom shot, there are two twin beds in the room. Now, this couple in I Love Lucy Lucy and Desi Arnaz were married in real life. But because of the, the beliefs about television and morality, they could not have them sleeping in the same bed. Dick Van Dyke show, same thing. Everything in the early 60s was the same thing and before that. Then about the mid-60s, now they say, you know, we're not going to do all this kissing and, uh, and all this other stuff, but we will put them in the same bed. A new thesis now. You can put them in the same bed. And then something else comes along, a further, further to um, <clears throat> into sin, you might say, 
And then a new thesis comes along, and they keep slipping, going further and further and further and further toward the original antithesis, which we're past that now. And so Hegel said, the more it goes, there it goes, boom, one right after another. It's influenced millions, hasn't it? Don't, do not people believe like Darwin, like Rousseau, like Hegel, John Dewey came along in the 1900s and said, hey, we are the human God. We don't need God. We, you are God. You, you know, you got to believe in yourself. That's what you got to do. You can do anything that you set your mind to doing. In fact, the world is your oyster. And we find, find out that a lot of our young people now are growing up and finding out, hey, you know, maybe I can't do everything. You know, maybe I'm not superhuman. Maybe I don't deserve a, a, a gift, a, a, a trophy every time I do something when I don't win. But this has become our belief system. In our, then we have, of course, Karl Marx. We have people that have enslaved millions of people because of a belief over economics. We've had uh, Muhammad with Islam. He comes along and says, look, there's not three gods, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We don't believe that, by the way. We just believe in the trinity of uh, three personalities in one God. But he said, no, I don't understand that. There's three, really. And so a new religion is born from there as well. And so it's like William Henley has written, we become the captain of our own soul. And there's different cultures. And here's the problem. There's one culture in America that believes one thing. There's another culture in Africa that believes something else. Another couple in Asia, uh, one of the Asian countries, believes something totally different. And, and now, all of a sudden, we've got a world with a lot of different beliefs, and, no, and everybody's saying, well, hey, just believe what you're going to believe. There are no absolutes. Tim Keller tells a story of a uh, secular anthropologist who was um, talking to him. And uh, she said that she went into Sudan to study um, the human element there and discovered there's a lot of oppression there, particularly among women or toward women. And she, she was appalled by it. She was disturbed as Paul was provoked and disturbed. And she mentioned it to one of the leaders. And he turned around to her and said, do not force your Western beliefs on us. And she said, you know, he's right. There is no truth. And so whatever they're doing in Sudan is okay. Just like whatever we're doing in America is okay. <clears throat> it's just whatever is true for you. But then she became so bothered by it that she decided, I know that there's no absolute truth. I know that there's not a God, but I'm going to do something about it anyway. And what she was saying is, yes, there is a right and wrong. There is a right and a wrong, and they're doing something wrong, and we're doing something right, whether she wants to admit it or not. And if there's some rules there, then there has to be a rule giver. But here we've gone into this culture of saying no right and wrong, do what you want to do, live the way you want to live. Why? Because Satan has placed his philosophies in our life the same way he places the thoughts in our life and the same way he tempts us to sin in life, the way he personally discourages us in life, the way he personally puts us into places of hurt and despair because of not bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so what's the path to freedom? The path of freedom. Let's look in verse 22. So Paul's standing in the midst of the Areopagus. I, I, you know, here's the problem with that. 
word. I know how to pronounce it, but when I was young and I was reading the Bible for the first time, I kept pronouncing it another way, and I can't get away from it. So there you go. <clears throat> Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, they're bringing to this place in Athens where the, the elite of the elite of the intellectuals were. And Paul began to preach the gospel to them. Notice in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made with man, of man. He says, look, you've got all these statues around. That's not God. He said, what, what you've had in intellectualism is limited. Now I'm going to give it to you in revelation. He says, in fact, in verse 23, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And that's what he's saying. Look, you've got an unknown God here. Let me tell you about the God that's really the unknown God, who you're really searching for in life. And Paul is basically saying, look, the truth's going to set you free. Let me tell you the truth. He says, God created the universe. But not only that, but then in verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed everything, anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He says, look, he's not only the creator of the universe, but he's the sustainer as well. Verse 27, or verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, talking about Adam, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's the ruler. He's in control. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him Yet he is actually not far off or, or from each one of us. For in him we live and move with our being, as even some of our own poets have said, for you are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now the art was there, but the imagination of man that he's talking about is the fact that they, they looked at these gods and they made something of stone to represent something that was in their heart. They were trying to form gods that they could live with. They could try to form gods that didn't have so many rules they couldn't live with those rules. They were forming gods after their own image. The times of ignorant, <clears throat> ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, he's beginning now to share the gospel of Christ with these intellectuals. <clears throat> he says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge. He says, not only is the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the ruler, he's going to judge. So there's accountability here. He says, in righteousness by man whom he has appointed, and this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard... On the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. All of a sudden, things begin to get personal. Things begin to get close. Wow, you're talking about a resurrection? None of the Epicureans or Stoics believed in any kind of supernatural resurrection. I mean, after all, the Epicureans said, when you're dead, you're dead. No resurrection. And so this babbler is talking about a resurrection, but yet his arguments were, were so close and so convicting that many of them said, wow, you know, I can't reject them, so I'll just hear you at another time. So the question comes up, is Christianity true? And I've got about five minutes to convince you that it is. Kind of hard to do that, isn't it? To re-persuade you. 
But you know, even my darkest times when I was younger, I had to ask myself the question, is God really love us? Is he there? Is the Bible right? You know, wow, you know, if, if he loves us, he would give us, isn't he sovereign enough to give us a perfect book that we could find him and then grow in him and overcome a lot of things in spiritual warfare? Well, yeah, if he's there. But what proves that he's there? And I couldn't get over something. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection message. And that's what the disciples kept coming back to over and over and over and over again. The tomb was empty on the third day. And we can look at it and say, well, how in the world, if, if Jesus Christ was not resurrected, what happened to the body? We know the body was not there. History will tell us that. And they give us two basic arguments. Either the disciples stole the body or the Jewish people or, or stole the body. Well, the Jewish people stole the body, the Jewish leaders, who did not want Christianity to grow. They wanted to stamp it out. All they had to do was produce the body. All that, you know, when Peter got up and preached on the day of Pentecost about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they said, aha, uh-huh, here's the body of Jesus. But they couldn't do that because it was gone. If the disciples stole the body, why in the world would they die for a faith that they knew was false? Nobody's ever done that before. So you, you come to grips with the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Bible tells us that means that Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, history will tell you that, by the way, he died on a Roman cross. That same Jesus who rose from the dead, it proved that he was the Son of God. And it proved that he died for what he said he died for, my sin and your sin. Now, if God's that powerful, he is more than powerful enough and sovereign enough to give us the Bible. If he has not given us the Bible, then what is he, a deist God? A lot of the young people believe that today from what I'm hearing, that he just wound up the world and just said, hey, you know, take off. I mean, you can't get beyond. I can't get over, never I could get over the fact that God created it. So he's there somewhere. But he's the God of, is he the God of Christianity? Or is he a God that just doesn't care? He comes by every once in a while, answers a prayer. And that's about it. Goes on maybe one of his other worlds. I don't know. Well, I do know. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That proved that he cares about us. It proves that he loved us so much that he gave himself on the cross for us. It proves his love for me. And the more Satan may tell you that he doesn't love you, the more you just have to simply come back to the fact of the resurrection message that Jesus Christ rose from the dead that proves that he died on the cross for your sins. That's how much he loved you. And because of that, we can trust his word. Because if he loves us enough to get intricately involved in our life, he loves us enough and sovereign enough to give us a book that we can read, we can understand, and we can apply to our everyday life. Because, dear friends, without Scripture, without that objective truth, your views are going to be shaped by the culture, whatever culture you're living in. And they're going to change. It's going to be nebulous. Roll with the tide, you might say. Just go with it. Because there's no objective 
truth. He says, bring into captivity every thought, the obedience of Christ. That's, that's why we want to preach the Bible, teach the Bible from the pulpit. It's the truth. The truth, however, does not become yours until it becomes you. And so you need models. That's the reason we're, we're pushing small groups right now. We want you to be involved in a small group so you can not only learn the Bible and ask, ask your questions, but also learn the Bible in such a way that you see it come alive in the people around you. Ah, oh, that's how you live. That's how it's done. That truth has become them, and that same truth needs to become me as well. And when that life message comes, you've got the resurrection message, you've got the written message, then becomes a life message. I love what C.S. Lewis has said. He says, I believe in God the way I believe in the Son. Not because I see the Son, but because the Son allows me to see everything else. I believe in God not just because of all the proofs. I believe in God because Jesus Christ has come into my life. And he's enlightened my life and he's allowed me to see a lot of other things. The truth about the world, the light has been turned on. It can be turned on with you as well. Concluding message, the only way we can keep our minds from deception, lies, addictions, doubt, deceptions, fear, sin, brokenness, is to read, study, believe, and practice the Bible for the truth to be in us, for us to bring into captivity, enslavement, the thoughts within our own mind. As we look at this, we understand that we all need help. And no person is an island. We are formed a lot by our own decisions. But we make those decisions based on the input of the Bible, other books, TV shows, movies. But the biggest thing is the people around us. Be careful who you hang around with. You're liable to become just like them. So we offer these small groups as help to you. John Lennon wrote the book, or wrote the song um, from the Beatles. He wrote the song Imagine after they split up. He wrote the, the song Imagine. That's really kind of a, a theme song to atheism, really. Imagine there's no God. There's no religion, no heaven, no hell, nothing. The Epicurean theme song. But five years before that, he wrote another song called Help. And they made a movie out of it, in fact, and kind of a ridiculous kind of movie, if you know what I'm saying. It's supposed to be funny and all that. So you never think about the, the song Help as being anything deep. Here's what it says. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. But now these days are gone, I'm not so self-assured now I find I've changed my mind. I've opened up the doors. Help me if you can. I'm feeling down. I do appreciate you being around. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me? Help me. Help me. In an interview a few years after he did that song, he said, well, I wrote that song as a cry for help. But then he said, but no one came. We never want that to be true in your life. There's going to be cries for help. 
You just can't go out and rent a friend all of a sudden. Rent somebody out that maybe has the example. No, you have to be in community with that. In just a few moments, we're going to show you a video of a great testimony, so I want you to stick around. But right now, as we reflect, I want our heads to be bowed and eyes closed. And every week, or most every week, I ask you the question, what about you? Does Christ live in your heart? Is the Holy Spirit living within you in such a way that would cause you to be able to withstand the temptations of life, to bring into captivity the thoughts toward God? Do you know if you were to die right now, you'd go to heaven? A lot of questions there, but all really the same one. Are you a follower of Christ? And so if you're not, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. With heads bowed, eyes closed, would you pray this prayer with me if you want Jesus in your heart? God, I just want to bring into captivity my thought life right now. And Lord, I know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And because of that, I know that he died for me. And because of that, I know the, the Bible's true. And it tells me that I'm a sinner. And I confess my sins to you. It tells me that Jesus paid for my sins on the cross. And whosoever shall call on him shall be saved. So I call on him right now. I ask you to come into my heart. Make me the person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.